because I haven't spent a whole lot of time, even in our history as a church, I haven't taught in the Old Testament other than a message here and there. Um, But Daniel is also particularly a difficult book because it's a prophetic book. And uh, we tend to look at things from, um, what does this tell me? But these prophecies are all about what God was telling other people. But what we need to do is, and, and I've been learning this recently, is that when you read Scripture, don't say, hey, what does this say to me, God? Read it, take it in for what it is, uh, and then find out what it says to you about God. Because if we will read Scripture trying to learn about God, what we do is we end up finding out about ourselves. If we know the one who made us, we know what his uh, mind is like, the way he's dealt with people in the past, what we learn is how he will deal with us now, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in Daniel chapter 11, I'll make sure this is working. In Daniel chapter 11, what you'll see is uh, we have already looked through verse 1, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1 through 35. And in chapter one, uh, 11, verse 1 through 35, let me get my tongue untwisted. Um, basically, what's happened so far is that the kings of the north and the kings of the south that he speaks of have been warring and battling. And if you remember with me, what Jesus said is that in the last days, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Now, what does he mean by last days? Well, if you remember from Daniel in chapter 10 and 11, we've, and in even verse 9, we got this prophecy of 70 weeks. But will we find out that these weren't weeks like you and I experienced? These were weeks of years. And so there's this whole multiplication of seven by every one of these that gives us the number of years. But here's the deal. What is a week? It's seven days, right? We have 70 weeks. He's gone through and explained to us 69 weeks of prophecy. And then what happens is in 70 AD, the the sacrificial system was shut down when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And at that point, this 70-week prophecy uh, hits the pause button. And there's one week left. And in that week, there is seven uh, days, but there are seven years So this seven years hasn't happened yet, and it's described in this last passage we're going to read. But what you need to know is that in a week, there are seven days. So think about it like your work week. Sunday, it's the first day. Whether we look at it that way or not, Sunday is the first day of the week. We always call it the weekend. But the weekend is Friday and Saturday. So if we are in the last days, we're not in Sunday, because that's the first day of the week. We're not on Monday, because nobody calls that the end of the week. They always call that like the drudgery, you know, like, oh gosh, here comes Monday. You know, there's a guy at work, his name's Brandon, and every time I say hi to him, he, it's every day's Monday to him. I say, hey, how's it going? He goes, pretty good for a Monday, no matter what day of the week it is. Every day is pretty good for a Monday, which I guess if you look at it that way, it's like, you know, it's one way to look at it. But you get to Tuesday, and it's like you're still kind of getting started. You're getting warmed up, and you get to Wednesday, hump day. <laughs> you know, people always walk up to me. They go, hey, Mike, 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 like the commercial. I'm like, what? Guess what day it is? I have no idea. Go ahead. I've never heard this one, you know. But Wednesday's hump day. We kind of get to the top, and we're like, hey, it's all downhill from here. And some of you, that's where you dial out. You're like, okay, I'm just going to coast. Don't do that. 
That's when you make bad decisions. Trust me. Trust me. I know. So Thursday comes around, and it's kind of, you can kind of feel that it's there. Thursday is my hardest day. I don't know about you guys. I get to Thursday, and I'm like, man, it is just close enough to be Friday, but I still got to come in tomorrow. And then Friday comes around, and there's this relief because you can see the end of the tunnel. Well, in the scheme of things, in the 70-week prophecy, whether you know this or not, we are in the last days. We're towards the end of the week. And I say that because the sacrificial system has been shut down. There's no sacrifice going on in Jerusalem. Trust me, I look for the smoke bloom. There's nothing when I was there. Um, so there's this man of sin spoken of in Daniel where he talks about that when this man comes in and he makes an agreement with the Jewish people, at that point, uh, the seven weeks will start. That, that, that there will be seven years left, or the one week. <laughs> the 70th week of Daniel will start up again. There will be seven years left. And at three and a half years, this man's going to make an agreement with the nation of Israel. He's going to come in with cunning and deceit, and he's going to flatter them with his tongue. And he's going to say all kinds of stuff. Politically, he's going to be a savior for them. But here's the deal. At three and a half years in, he's going to go into the temple. He's going to defile it, much like Antiochus Epiphanes did in the previous section that we read in chapter 11. He's going to come in. He won't be a type of Antichrist. He will be the Antichrist. He will come into the temple. He will defile it. He will set up an image of himself. He will proclaim to be God, and he will ask to be worshipped. He will demand it. He will be the one to bring the nations together. You know, people always cry out for peace and understanding and for unity. Mankind can all come together, then we can have peace. And this man is going to be the one to come in. He's going to guarantee peace. He's going to deliver it. And everyone will be like, we did it. We finally found the utopia. But this man is going to be just a man. He will be bent on having power. He'll do it with flattery. And at three and a half years, he'll, he'll, basically, the Jews are going to see him. They're going to go, what in the world? He sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped. It will be the desolation that causes, abomina- or the abomination that causes desolation. He will claim to be God. So that's who we're talking about today. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 1 through 35, there's this prophecy about this man. In verse, uh, let's start in uh, verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and go towards the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant, against the people of God, the people God made a promise to, and he shall do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the covenant. He's going to reward those who forsake the covenant, who forsake their God. They will deny their God and follow him. He'll reward them. And then, verse 31, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. This is historical. This already happened. Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, showed up in Jerusalem. He went into the temple. He took over control of it. And he set up an image of Zeus, or his other name is Jupiter. If you've ever heard of Jupiter, the, the god, Jupiter, uh, Zeus is something also that we know about from 
uh, you know, mythology. But essentially, he sets up this God in the temple, and then he sacrifices on the altar something that the Jews would, they're not even allowed to eat. They're going to sacrifice a pig. So not only are, is he going to have a false God in the temple, in this holy place, but he'll sacrifice a pig, and the blood will be spilled on the altar, essentially defiling it. It, it will be desolated. And so this was a sign of the Antichrist, but this is just a type. This has already happened. The Antichrist will come, but it is yet future. And so um, he will take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he will corrupt with flattery. There's that word again, flattery. But the people who know their God, look at this contrast, those who reject their God and forsake his word and decide not to follow him in that day, it already happened, he, he corrupted them with flattery. What is corruption? Corruption is like rust. It eats away. If your car is corrupted, if the clear coat's gone and the paint's been scratched, that's where corruption begins. And that's what this man did. He spoke to them with flattery, essentially cutting away at the outer edge of who they were, and he got down to the heart and he poured in poison. He let the salt and the grime from wintertime get into the, the paint and the metal of the, the car, and essentially it gets corrupted, and that's what happens to us. Satan comes along as an angel of light and flatters us. He tells us we're doing just fine. He tells us how great we are, how we should be able to and allowed to do certain things, and how God doesn't have our best interests in mind. And when he does that, he corrupts us with flattery. He tells us everything we want to hear. He essentially makes us God in our own eyes. And when he does that, he wins. He corrupts us. That's what this man did to those who would listen to him. But the people who knew their God or who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So this happened, and we know that because there was a family called the Maccabees who went up against this Antiochus Epiphanes, and they actually went in and retook the Temple Mount they cleansed the temple. That's what we celebrate at the time of Hanukkah. And that's going on around the same time of Christmas. This eight days they celebrate it. And essentially the miracle was that they didn't have enough oil to put in the oil lamp in the temple while they were cleansing it, rededicating it. And God miraculously made the, the oil lamp burn for eight straight days without them putting any oil into it. So that's the festival of lights or the festival of dedication. So, they carried out great exploits because they knew their God and they were strong because of it. They fought on behalf of the Lord they, they, and, and as they did that, God blessed them and they did great exploits. Verse 33, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days after this they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. They shall be put to death for their trust in the Lord. Persecution. Verse 34, now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end. Not the end of time, but until the time of the end, which is that last week spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, the 70th week of Daniel, the end of the time of the end because it is still for an appointed time. So what I want you to remember with me is that chapter 11 has been about wars 
rumors of wars, kings being raised up, and kings being humbled. And because it's been about that, I want to remind you that even though all these wicked kingdoms are destroying each other and fighting and striving for power, it doesn't change the program of God. God's program will be fulfilled whether or not they have their little spats. And so what happens is that we get down here, um, and it says the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. It didn't move because these kingdoms were warring against one another. It doesn't change God's ultimate plan. So verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will. So what I want you to know about prophecy is many times in prophecy there's this word, and the, the man who writes it down, that God essentially look at prophets like a pen. God uses humans as his pen to write down what he wants to say. And uh, the cool thing is, is he uses our personalities. He doesn't want us all to be robots. He knows that some people are going to be red pens and some people are going to be green pens. He uses that. He uses our character. He uses our flaws. But he writes through men in the Old Testament, especially these prophets speak to the nation and he uses their, their character and their attitudes and everything. Think about Jonah. Jonah was basically, uh, he, he rebelled against God and God spoke through him anyway. And he ended up becoming a sign of Jesus. But what I want to point out is that many times when God gives a prophecy, there's, there's an element that speaks directly to the people that the prophet's going to write to. But there's an element that many times, even with a comma, jumps ahead to something that's future. And we don't even know it until it comes to pass. But what we do know from Daniel is in verse 36, it's no longer about the past, the historical, the stuff that's already happened. It's about something that is yet future. So verse 36 says this, The king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. So it says the king shall do according to his own will. We already noticed as we read through all these kingdoms that have been warring against one another, that's what kings do. They do what they want to do. This is my life. I get to use it how I want. I get to make my own decisions. But here he says, he shall exalt and magnify himself. Now, if you read in the Old Testament, many times in the Psalms, uh, King David would write, my heart doth exalt and magnify himself. No, the Lord. See, that's the difference between those who serve themselves and those who serve God. Those who serve God will magnify God. Those who serve themselves will magnify their God, which is them. And there's a big distinction, but sometimes we hide that. So it says there, he shall magnify himself above every god, all gods. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. The wrath that, has been that will be accomplished or has been accomplished is going to be that last week, that seven years the wrath is the word indignation, which is the same word that's used for tribulation when Jesus speaks about the great tribulation. And it's again spoken about in Revelation, talking about the time of tribulation that is unlike any other time that's ever been seen in human history. It will be a time to end all times. So, but notice here it says, He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God. 
I did not quite understand this till a conversation I had the other day on Facebook. Now, I wasn't arguing with somebody. There was a, a known atheist that was saying some things, and I saw something on his page. And basically, his cover picture, I, need, I, I have it on my phone here. His cover picture, I'm, I'm going to show it to you, so if you don't have your glasses on, good luck. It's right here. No. It says, it says uh, this, is, this is the spirit of this age, by the way. I want to point this out. Um, this is uh, anti-religion people, Freedom from Religion Foundation. That, have you guys heard of that? So this is their deal. Do the right thing because it is the right thing. Fear no God. Now, before you shake your head at this, think about it. Many times Christians believe that following Jesus is about doing the right thing. It's about morality. It's about doing the right thing and being good. But Christianity is about the fact that God has a standard for good and nobody can live up to that standard without him. It's not about just being good because if it's all about being good, then Jesus didn't need to die for me. Christianity is about the fact that I cannot be good enough for God on my own. I need a Savior. So the conversation comes up. Uh, do the right thing because it's the right thing, but don't fear God to do it. You can do it on your own. But here's the deal. How do you define right? What is right? I asked him this question. He could not answer it. He had all kinds of words to walk around it, but essentially, if you don't believe what God says is right is right, then what do you believe is right? And I would even say that many of us in here have our own standard for that. Whether we realize it or not, we didn't do it on purpose. It's just that we naturally come up with, well, this is the line, and this isn't okay, and this is. We all have that. It's just part of it. It's like a fence in your yard. The kids can't go past this point. This stuff's okay. But when you reject what God says is morally right, and you say, well, I can do what's right, you're, you have a standard of right and wrong. My question is, for those people and for us, where do we get that standard? Where do you get your standard for right and wrong? This man had a standard that he had no idea was a standard that God set up. God placed it in his heart. God places a conscience in your and my mind. But the reality is, many times we go, well, I'm going to make my own standard, which in fact makes yourself to be your own God. And that's what this man has done. And that's what culture is currently saying. We don't need religion. Religion's caused all this murder and strife and problems. If we just get rid of all standards and live according to what's right, wherever you get that from, then everything will be fine. Except what we do is we end up making our own selves God and choosing what's right and wrong. The problem is, is that I got a standard of right and wrong. And Dave's got a standard of right and wrong. Ronnie's got one. And Steve's got one. And we've all got our own standard of right and wrong, right? Wrong? Right? But, but the problem is, many times, what I think is right, Steve doesn't think is right. So if I do it unto him, he's going to have retaliation. So it really doesn't get rid of the war. It only intensifies. It makes every one of us our own country, our own God. So my point, and I just wanted to point that out because culturally, that's where we're shifting to. We're in a post-Christian nation, and people are no longer going to church because it's good for business or because it's the community thing, and what will people think if I don't? They're going, okay, I want something that's real. 
And that atheist over there has more morality than the guy I saw in church last week. And so we have to live up to God's standard and, and tout that as this isn't my standard, this is the Lord's. So we can point to the Lord's law, but that's just something I was thinking about as I was studying this, because he says, he shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. And before that, it says, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every God. That actually doesn't necessarily look like a bad thing, because this guy that I, I was talking to is a very moral man without God. He's exalted himself above all gods. He says, I don't need gods. So this guy might not come in and have devil horns and be murdering people. He's going to come in and it's going to look really good. And so he shall regard, verse 37, neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above all. Now, he shall regard neither the gods of his fathers. So whatever the gods are that his fathers followed, he won't follow. So, you know, he could be a Jewish man. He could be a secular Gentile man. It, do, we, it doesn't say. But then it says one of the things that describe him is he won't regard... Um, sorry. He uh, will not regard... Uh, he will regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women... Now, there are many commentators that say, well, then he'll obviously be a homosexual. Uh, I, I deny that uh, interpretation because Jesus was actually the desire of women, not meaning that he was attractive and everybody wanted him. The desire of women means that in the day of Daniel, everyone was looking for the Messiah to come. They knew he was going to come through the Israelite people, and every woman who could have children wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. That was their desire. Man, Messiah's going to come. I wonder who's going to have him. He's going to be born of women. It was a promise back in Genesis that the seed of the woman would put Satan under his heel. This Messiah is going to come and do this. He's going to redeem us. And so the desire of women was the, this Messiah come through them. He won't regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. So he will honor a God of fortresses, meaning a military God, a, a peacekeeping military of some sort, uh, fortresses, being able to protect yourself by building things, being able to protect yourself by building weapons for, uh, for destruction. And so uh, with precious stones and gold and silver and pleasant things, he will make offerings to this God. He will honor this God. Thus, he shall act against the strongest forces, fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So, verse 40. At the time of the end, there's that phrase again, the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. So this man that sets him up, makes peace with Jerusalem or with Israel, the king of the, the, the south shall attack him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. So these, these two nations, one from the south coming up, and remember, I said this, this is the central point for war, seems to be Israel in the Middle East. So this nation from the south, led by a, a king from either Egypt or one of those southern nations, will come towards the north to defeat this man who has overtaken Israel. 
there will be a kingdom from the north that will come south. And so it's, it's all coming to a head. You know, it's, it's all of a sudden, it's gonna, you know, there's going to be this big war. He shall also, verse 41, enter the glorious land. And this is always a term for Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. And he gives a list. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Where is Ammon? Does anybody know what country that's in? Ammon, Jordan. So that's to the east. So there's going to be these countries, and that's the Saudi Arabia Peninsula. So we have Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, Jordan. Verse 42, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So this is the the southern area below Israel. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Think about it. He who has the gold has the what? Has the power. So if you got you got money, you got power in the eyes of the world. Also, the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. So the Libyans are in northern Africa, right? They're south and west of Egypt. And the Ethiopians, which is the, the area, I think like two countries south of Egypt, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So what's the holy mountain that is spoken of in Scripture? It's, it's Jerusalem. It's, that's the place where God has chosen to make his name dwell, which I think is interesting. When I was there, it actually, um, God's name is described with this, and I can't remember shouldn't even talk about it because I can't remember the name of the, the letter. But basically, there's three valleys that all come together and make uh, Shin. The letter Shin, it looks like a W. And actually, that's the name of God in Hebrew. So even the valleys, if you, if you had a big drone and you went right above Jerusalem, you can see the name of God written on the land in the valleys. Yeah, that's for another time. But he says, uh, I lost my place. He shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So this is in a valley that's between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. This valley is called Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo. Does it sound familiar? If you read the book of Revelation, this is the valley where the battle will happen, the battle to end all battles, the battle of Armageddon. And I'm not talking about the movie where Steven Tyler did the soundtrack. I'm talking about the battle of Armageddon the battle that will end all strives and, and wars and rumors of wars. It'll be over. And we know from reading Revelation that Jesus is actually the one that says, it's over, it's done. Like dad when he shows up when the kids have been fighting. You know, maybe not in every house, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to tell your father when he comes home. You know, and then the wars are over. Or a new one starts. I, you know, it just depends on what your house is like. But here... It says he will plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain right there in the valley. He shall come to his end and no one will help him. And that is speaking specifically of all these armies coming to one valley. Think about it. Every army in the whole world coming to one place and this man who is the Antichrist uh, will shut it down. Now what we know is that these, these uh, armies will all come together to fight each other. And at the time that Jesus shows up, 
they all join together to fight against him. Think about it. It's just like when Jesus came to this earth as a human being, all these groups in Israel were warring against each other, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the tax collectors. But when Jesus came on the scene and said, I'm God, they had nothing in agreement except they hated Jesus, and they all turned against him. And in the same way, at the end of things, there's going to be a war. They're all getting there to fight each other. And when they get there, Jesus shows up and they all go, hey, I don't like you guys, but let's destroy him because he's the one that wants to take over authority and power. And we, cannot agree on, we can't agree on anything, but we can agree on one thing. We don't want him to be in control because that means the end of our kingdoms. And so Jesus shows up. Now that's all in one verse. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1 says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Speaking of Israel, this prince is the archangel Michael, spoken of in Scripture. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since, such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is speaking of, in the Old Testament, if you want to find resurrection, there it is. Some will arise uh, from the dust of the earth to resurrection and everlasting life. And some will arise to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. There are three types of motivation. That's why this is in Scripture. I just heard about these yesterday. Three types of motivation. One type of motivation is promise of reward. Jesus was very good at this. You read the parables. uh, Who is that faithful servant? He who has been faithful over a few things will be given the ability to be faithful over many. And Jesus, oftentimes, if you read through the parables, he spoke about eternal rewards to those who are faithful. Um, Another type of motivation is the fear of consequences. Now, many people would say, well, they're just serving you because they don't want to get in trouble. That's an okay motivation. That's an okay motivation. You know, we, we tell people, if you don't follow the laws, you will get a ticket. You will go to jail. Those are all good consequences to warn you. It's a fence that keeps you from doing wrong. You can't change the heart, but it's motivation, right? The third motivation is gratitude. Gratitude. Just this week, I was given an opportunity to have gratitude and be motivated again. I'm motivated many times when I see the promise of rewards. I get it. I'm motivated many times when I don't want to experience consequences. I get that too. But it's been a while since I've really recognized the compassion, the mercy of God. So here's what happened. I'm considering uh, going back to school so I can become a teacher. Considering it. I'm not there yet. But in that consideration, one of the things that the program I want to do says is that you have, to, um, you have to turn in your transcript from your bachelor's. Now, you guys didn't know me before Jesus, okay? But what I want to tell you, first and foremost, is that I was not walking with Jesus I thought I was. I thought that I had made God my Savior and that he was never my Lord. And because of that, there was a lot of debauchery, a lot of things I'm greatly ashamed of. So if you ever feel like, hey, he can't relate to me, he's a pastor, um, you're dead wrong and shame on you. 
because there is no one following Jesus that doesn't need mercy and compassion. And if there's anybody that ever seems that way, and if I've ever made myself seem like uh, I was never there, then I'm sorry. I've misrepresented myself. But I was reminded of that this week as I was looking at this program, and it said, uh, you got to turn in your transcript. So I, I emailed my, my college. I'm like, I need my transcript. And they're like, we need 10 bucks. And I'm like, I paid you thousands of dollars. I got to pay you 10 more? They're always taking my money. Lord Jesus, come back. Um, anyway, they send it to me. <laughs> and, then, and then I open the PDF. <sighs> God was way more merciful on me than you guys know. I had in my mind kind of rose-colored a lot. I knew I didn't do well in college. Don't get me wrong. I thought I did better than that. By the grace of God, he helped me graduate. I do have a bachelor's. I earned it. Um, But in many ways, I could have done so much better. And I'm ashamed to look at those grades. But in that shame, I remember that Jesus died for my shame. He died for the sins that I was committing while I wasn't going to class. You know, he, he, by his grace, his mercy, got me through because I made a simple prayer and said, Lord, if you'll just get me out of this, I will serve you. Little did I know, here I am 11 years later, I didn't think he was going to call me to be a pastor. But compassion, God had compassion on me. I was sinning against him royally, and I did for many years after that. But the beauty is, is that just getting to see that PDF once again and reminded about how bad I was off, And now to look at my family and how God's blessed me anyway, I'm motivated. So when you read this scripture where he says, you know, he says in verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, which is a promise of reward. And he says uh, some to shame and everlasting contempt, which is a promise of consequences. There should be fear there. I hope there is. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. Don't own it. You know, own that. You should be ashamed of your past, I hope. You should be aware that you have promised a hope, a future reward. If you are in Christ, God has great, amazing things he wants to do through you, and they're going to be simple things, but the beauty is there should be a transition there. If there's not been a transition, you're not in Christ. You're the same as you always were. But the beauty is when you recognize that, You're not just motivated by fear of consequences anymore. You're not just motivated by the promise of reward, which is great. You're motivated by thankfulness. Lord, look where I was and look where I am now. Thank you so much. I have a promise of everlasting life. He says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who are wise will shine. And then he says, and those who turn many to righteousness. That's our job. That's why Jesus didn't just take us home. He's given us an opportunity to be ministers of reconciliation, to turn people away from wickedness to righteousness. That's why he sent Jonah to his people. Jonah went to those people and he goes, Lord, I'm not going to speak to them. I hate them. And Jonah hated the people he was sent to. But his job was to go there and turn them away from sin to righteousness. God loves wicked, evil, murderous people. He just does. And I don't get that, but I'm thankful. To, because, but for the grace of God, I would be there. I would have continued on the, the slip and slide to, to destruction. But then he says, but you, Daniel, verse 4, 
Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. The time of the end, one of the signs will be that many shall run to and fro. I've read different takes on this. Uh, One take said that means that people read Scripture and understand more and more of it, and it will happen quickly. They will run to and fro. Uh, I like the other take on it, which is uh, we'll be able to travel anywhere quickly, uh, either by car or by plane or by FaceTime or by the Internet. You know, like, I don't know this. I'm going to go look it up. We're going to travel to and fro. We're going to be going in 10 different directions. We're going to be like a pinball and, and we are, right? I mean, I think most of us would own that. We're busy more than any previous generation. But the other sign of this time, knowledge shall increase. We have access to more information and knowledge at this point than anybody in human history. All I got to do is go and hit return, and I've got all this information and knowledge. Some of it's good, some of it's ridiculous, some of it's hilarious, you know, right? Uh, But we have more knowledge than any previous generation. We're responsible for that knowledge, by the way. But he says, uh, at the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one uh, on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank, and one said to the man clothed in linen, this is the man spoken of previously, we believe it's the vision of Jesus who was above the waters of the river. How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? So Daniel wants to know, how long will these, these, these wonders be taking place? And then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven. So this man holds up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time, which is just a poetic say, way to say a year, two years, and a half a year. Time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years, which is the, the half of a, uh, the tribulation, uh, seven years. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard... Daniel says, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? So when is this going to take place? And he said, oh no, how is this going to take place? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise will understand. So over time, I'm going to give you understanding. Remember, everything that he said to this point is historic and then future. But to Daniel, it's all future. None of it is already happened. And so as he goes through this, he says, the wicked shall do wickedly, makes sense. And none of the wicked will understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice, again, he repeats this, from the time that this daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple, there shall be 1,290 days, three and a half years. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days, 45 days after that. So he doesn't explain that. He says, blessed is he who waits and, and survives through the 45 days after the three and a half years. But you, he says to Daniel, 
Remember, he's many times spoken of Daniel and saying, you, prophet, greatly beloved of God. He always encourages him. He says, go your way till the end, for you shall rest, meaning you will die, and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. And so this isn't for your time period. You're going to die, but many will read this after you. Those who are wise will understand. Those who are wicked will not. But it's for a future time. So he gives all of this information. And he has all these rumors of wars and wars and the final war and and all the things that are going to take place. And he gives this vision. But what I want to end on is in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If God loves us so much, why does he allow this kind of crazy chaos to happen? You ever have that question come up? If you love us, then why are you letting this stuff take place? You know what's going to happen ahead of time, and you just let it roll. Why? Well, let me, uh, let me draw this conclusion, and you can wrestle with it yourself. I believe that everything that happens to us in this world, all the bad stuff, is the best stuff that prepares us for heaven. Anything that happens to you in this life that causes you to go, that's not fair, or that's ridiculous, or why is God allowing this to happen? It's all because in our hearts, God's placed eternity. And we have this longing for everything to be just and everything to be fair and everything to be right. And for all of a sudden, us not to be vexed anymore by the things going on around us. But that seed that God's planted in our heart is really just something that is a, lo- it's a longing, whether you realize it or not, for heaven. Because this side of heaven, it's never going to be right. It's always going to be unfair. Innocent children are going to be used in labor camps. Uh, people that, uh, women are going to be traded in sex, tr- sex trade. It's going to happen. Until Jesus comes and he says, I'm done, no more. It's going to continue. But all of these horrible things that are happening are there for us to see, to be broken, to pray, to seek the Lord's kingdom and his righteousness, which is the only thing that's going to change it. Because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus specifically promised they would be filled. If you are hungry for things to be set right, God's going to fulfill that, but you have to trust him in the meantime. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ personally, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also, look at this, we glory in tribulations. Tribulations don't cause us to be, to be darkened. They actually should cause us to shine brighter. They should refine our lives. We glory in tribulations, knowing this, that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When do you long for heaven? Is it when everything's going great? Or is it when things really kind of, forgive me, suck. Because when things aren't going good, it causes us to live not for the moment, not for the next event, but for eternity. That's it. So when Daniel writes this down, he is grieved. 
but it gives them a greater hope for things to be set right. It gives them a greater desire to tell everyone he can, live for eternity because this life is passing. It's going to end. It's gonna, we're going to look back from eternity and look on this life and go, wow, that was just like five seconds. You ever go through a week and go, man, this is the longest week ever. We just had one of those, by the way. In eternity, it's going to seem like a drop in the bucket. We won't even care. You know. So what are you living for? Are you living for this world? Uh, I don't pray that the Lord puts tribulation in your life. Don't get me wrong. But if you're living for this world, you're always going to be disappointed. You're always going to be worn out. But if you're living for eternity, and you'll still be worn out, by the way. You'll still be disappointed. Uh, but you'll recognize that your hope isn't here. So it's okay if things completely fail. If you don't get your way, if everything's not set right, if it's not fair, it'll be okay because heaven's our home and God's going to set up his kingdom. And guess what? We get to rise to our inheritance. He's building a place for us and that place is going to be awesome. He spent two millennia making it. My dad built us a house and it took like eight months. That thing's awesome. I cannot imagine what 2,000 years where the building's going to be like. It's going to be perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Daniel, a man, a man that was in his generation in really horrible circumstances, surrounded by people that rejected you as God, who were given over to the worship of idols, a man who was made faithful because he obeyed you even when no one was looking. A man who desired more than anything to be in your presence, to be back home on your holy hill in Jerusalem. And yet that didn't discourage him from praying for his people and for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for his desire that um, gave him the ability to seek your face. Thank you for revealing yourself to him in such a personal and yet in a national way and really in a global way. Thank you for revealing yourself to those who diligently seek you. You promised that in your word. You, you reveal yourself to those who look for you. So, Father, would you make us folks, people, individuals, families, that seek you above all else and are satisfied by how you reveal yourself? Lord, would you help us to get a new, fresh look at Jesus, especially at this time of Christmas? Help us to see beyond the traditions, even though I love traditions. Help, help us to see beyond um, the things we feel like we have to do. Help us to see beyond even the, the hustle and bustle. Help us just to enjoy the fact that you sent your son. If we were the only individual, if I was the only one alive, you would have sent Jesus for me. I just can't grasp that. Thank you for your self-sacrificing love. Thank you for showing us that you were willing to make yourself weak so that we could become strong. Or would you help us to share that truth with the world around us? Help us to share the gospel. Help us to share Jesus with those that are hopeless. We are surrounded by them. Just in our little valley, we have so many that are hopeless. They're discouraged. They're depressed. The holidays are hard. And they don't even have any stuff to make it feel like it's better. Father, would you help us to embrace the hope that we have in Christ?
Would you help us to be Christ in others' lives? In Jesus' name, amen.